This is episode 181 of the A News Podcast, a digest on anarchist activity, ideas, and conversations from the previous week on Anarchist News. We hope it's useful too and fun for anarchists and the anarcho-curious. Give us feedback and constructive criticism by email at podcast at anarchistnews.org. For more information, and usually some good commentary, see you at your favorite non-sectarian anarchist site, anarchistnews.org. What's new this week? The Never-Ending Martial Law, from Vandalang Itim.noblogs.org, by Malaganu. Vandalang Itim is about to come out with a journal series, and this essay is probably indicative of the kind of writing that will be in it. Philippines-based, but of course with ramifications for other places, especially useful perhaps for those of us who have not yet lived under more severe forms of dictatorship and don't have friends in Belarus, or Russia, or North Korea, or Saudi Arabia, or China, or, or, or. The article is a reflection on the anniversary of the Declaration of Martial Law under Marcos in 1972, and its continuation under different names and masks up through today. Quote, Whether we like it or not, the Marcos era, governed through a martial law, is responsible for the injuries, deaths, and disappearances of hundreds and thousands of people, the suppression of the freedom of expression, assembly, and the press, and the rise of insurgency born out of oppression and exacerbated through social inequality. The actions of one strongman done through his psychophants and attack dogs have affected the psyche of our society so much that we are still reeling with its repercussions to this day. In fact, one can argue that the martial law has crafted the republic we know today." Unquote. The Rebellions of Misery, from Anon by Gustavo Rodriguez. Another solid reference piece by this brutal reality check of a writer, this essay is a history lesson and an extrapolation of revolt and revolution, critical of leftist delusions and accounting, like that misery does much more than fuel turnings of the wheel of the state. Millions of people have starved and died of disease in the past, and the fascism that both assists and results from that suffering is also at least the partial future. Quote, we cannot fall into the trap of urgency and lower our guard against the authoritarian replacement of reality. Power keeps reality captive from the first day of its existence on the face of the earth, hence the impossibility of transforming it as cynically proposed by the left in all corners. The cantaleta of another world as possible is the contemporary trap to prolong the homonymy that says that power equals reality, hence the appetite to put into practice a thought action capable of demolishing reality, not to transform it. Only in this way is the trap of totality disarmed. Therein lies the need to think about anarchic praxis in its excessive dimension, the need to move from prepositional syntagmas to the paradigm. However, in order to create a new anarchic paradigm, it is essential to burn all the roadmaps." Unquote. Take care of yourself, Gustavo. Attack on Police Car in Belarus from Anarchist Fighter, which emphasizes, as do so many, the fighter and not the anarchist, as far as I can tell. Quote, this night we tried to be with you. We visited some fascist police stations and have made our best effort to reduce the number of police vehicles that could get to the peaceful demonstrators. We call upon the people of Belarus to use partisan tactics that their ancestors are famous for. Only self-organization, mutual support, and direct action together with our resolute will can destroy this fascist infestation and break the yoke of Lukashism." Unquote. Trump and Barr call NYC an anarchist jurisdiction from NBC News of the Mainstreamiest by Kim Kelly, who is really getting around as the voice for an anarchist movement, as far as that goes. 
This link-heavy article reminds us of the historical antecedents just in the U.S. of anarchist jacketing, though I think it might be new to label entire states anarchist territories. Kelly makes the argument for anarchism as a warm and fuzzy, firmly left-wing ideology that is a voice for the voiceless and has been martyred throughout history, which, you know, sure, but whatever. She does at least acknowledge that the Democrats are also sucking in this whole rush to law and order rhetoric slash activity. Quote, Abolishing the police and freeing all political protesters would have been anarchist acts. What these liberal cities have actually done is offer the people a few scraps in hopes that they'll lose interest and stop demanding real justice. It was the absolute least they could do, and yet a vindictive Trump is now attempting to punish these cities' residents in retribution. Because while the wealthy political elite bloviate from their well-secured mansions, it will be the people who suffer from this political game. The progressives and liberals and socialists and anarchists and regular politically unaffiliated residents who took to the streets to protest the epidemic of state-sponsored black death and to fight for black lives, unquote. September 2020, Kate Sharpley Library Bulletin. From Anon. Most significantly, this is an appreciation of and a memorial for Stuart Christie, rest in peace, with links to more and to interviews. This bulletin also has an appreciation of Kuasi Balagoon's Anarchy Can't Fight Alone, a thumbnail on Berta Tubisman, tortured in her 50s, who didn't break, a report on a new graphic novel about Simon Radowitzki, a poem about Barcelona in 1936, and insulting the French flag in 1938. History! Solidarity with Juan Aliste and Marcelo Villarroel, from Contra Info, translated by A News. Short histories and solidarity statements for two Chilean prisoners, sentenced for bank robberies and the death of a cop, but probably motivated by their political activity. Quote, In that last event that took place on October 18th, 2007, in the center of Santiago, the cops quickly accused them as the perpetrators through the press, bringing up their history of combat against the dictatorship of the tyrant Augusto Pinochet, since Juan and Marcelo had belonged to the urban guerrilla of Mapu Letaro, an organization that fought in those times in Chile. Both spent more than 10 years in prison for subversive actions that had great repercussions, so that, for the state, politicians, and police intelligence, Juan and Marcelo were not strangers, unquote. There are no specifics here about what kind of assistance they are requesting, but we all know what solidarity means. Statement by Alfredo Cospito from Contra Info, translated by Anarchist News. This is Alfredo's long statement to the court in the appeal in the Scriptum Anent trial. Here he corrects the prosecutor about the difference between terrorism and massacre, and defends and roots terrorism in the activities of respected Italian revolutionaries. Quote, now we come to the absurdity of the distortion of my words, to the miracle of the transformation of water into wine, when the prosecutor, complaining to the judge of the first degree for not having distorted my writing as he has done, transforms my first statement above into a confession. When instead, in this writing of mine, I argue in a way that although I have not carried out those actions attributed to me, I do not disassociate myself from them, appreciating them, again, let it be clear, because I do not consider them massacres. Unquote. If you have the time, it is worth reading this long defense, which, through its length and its patience, builds to the ending joke of the last line. NYC Anarchist Book Fair 2020 starts tomorrow from anarchistbookfair.net. This is done by the time you hear this podcast, but there are plenty of virtual workshops and recorded conversations from the well-worthwhile to the bone-wrenching terrible. Some of these recordings have been up for a while, so maybe you've heard some of them already, like the one on SOMA, the public relations video by Woodbine, I mean PR video number 342, 
or the hour-and-a-half-long talk by Ben Murea on revolutionary animism, which is more autobiographical than it is theoretical, but Ben is of course a great character and startlingly concise and clear about what revolutionary animism is. Go listen to some of these things and let us know what you think. I will be checking out C4SS's argument for a new kind of police. Sounds amazing, right? Truly amazing. Interview, Terra Incognita Squat from Abolition Media Worldwide. Subtitled, The Struggle of Thessalonica Through the Eyes of Terra Incognita Squat, this is a history of the squat, which started 17 years ago and is housed and participated in many projects, from gyms to infirmaries. Quote, question, what political strategies do you consider to be more relevant for the future? Answer, during the last years, a big part of the movement, of which we are a part, chose to consistently attack the state and the capital, the political mobsters together with all those who are to be blamed for the exploitation and repression of the social basis by publicly taking the responsibility for every attack. In this way, we will be able to follow a stable, consistent strategy of conflict through struggling with every possible means. This is one of the main reasons why the repressive system focuses on us. For us, this is of great importance. We need to prove that by striking us, the state did nothing else but evict us space. What matters for us the most is to return to our basic strategy as a political assembly and as a squat, to create stable, consistent points of reference and expression of the anarchist struggle and to intensify the conflict with the political mechanisms and personalities that are responsible for the state and capitalistic barbarity, class exploitation, and inequality." Unquote. Whole lot of rhetoric going on there. But stability and consistency are definitely important. And conflict, just saying. This thread had a comment from an anonymous poster that was critical of the folks at the squat, saying that they were not around and introducing me to the phrase, shut open, which makes immediate sense for anyone who has experienced it. Of course, anonymous online comments are worth about... Getting the silent treatment again from seanswain.org. Sean appears to be being harassed for his recent letter describing his torture by a man named Clark and the lack of attention or response to it by Clark's co-workers slash prison staff. Because Sean wields whatever weapons he has with imagination and energy, I expect said workers feel somewhat threatened as none of them want the attention of the internet on their addresses or families. This harassment comes shortly after Detroit ABC published Sean's an open letter to Annette Chamber-Smith from anarchist prisoner Sean Sween, copies of which were intercepted by mailroom goons alongside portions of Sean's forthcoming LBC book, Ohio, an expansion of his formerly published zine. Here we reproduce the contents of Sean's open letter and invite readers and supporters to reach out to the ODRC and the VADOC and inquire as to Sean's communication, unquote. A Demonstrator's Guide to Responding to Gunshot Wounds from CrimeThink, in which people are encouraged to know the trauma center closest to wherever a protest is, how to respond to gunshot wounds and what they are, and how to pay attention. There are many loud noises in protests. Know what is a firework, for example how to transfer information quickly and clearly, etc. Of course, this is actually good information for pretty much anyone, since accidents and shootings happen at various times and places. But sure, if learning about this for protests is what motivates you to figure this stuff out, then great. There are comparisons of medical equipment, advice on how to prepare. Certainly this is worth reading, even if it's just to remind yourself about stuff you already know. Quote, immediate treatment options. Nothing you could read here can substitute for proper medical training. However, if you own a tourniquet and possess a basic understanding of how to stop a bleed on an arm or leg, some action may be better than nothing. 
If gunshots ring out, try not to panic. First, get to a safer place. In the system of tactical emergency casualty care, the first step is to maintain scene safety so that you do not become a casualty as well. Find cover from which to assess the situation. Cover designates anything that can stop the rounds you are facing, which depends on the situation and the caliber of weapon. Consider a brick wall or the engine block of a car. If you determine that someone has been shot and you are equipped to provide aid, make sure the scene is relatively secure. If you can determine this, communicate to your friends that you intend to move to the person who has been hit. While moving, ask the person questions to determine how to care for them. Where were you shot? Or simply, what is your name? If they answer these questions before you reach them, this will indicate that their airway is open and they are conscious, and you may obtain enough information to start preparing your equipment and your mindset." Unquote. Go read this article, whether or not you go to protests is what I'm saying. More DIY health and emergency preparation is just a good thing. Against the struggle of the coward, from enoughisenough14.org, quote, a group of free anarchists report about political struggles around the world, unquote, by Radio Fragmata. An explanation that anarchists are brave because we are against the things that are expected and easy, and that police and fascists are cowards, using, notably, the analogy of someone stripping a screw by not being able to feel when it has gone as deeply as it can. This is not a good metaphor, as far as I can tell, but it's new to me, so that's nice. Quote, The anarchist position is by far the most controversial of all political struggles. We can never turn to any border for asylum, nor any official for protection. We function without faith in society's flaunted matrix of so-called rights. We function without an expectation of victory, and we fall in line with an affinity of organic desire and passion, rather than a prescribed ideology or organization. Our anger is that of the excluded, so we can expect to be underfunded. We work towards the impossible, so we can expect the relentless wrath of capitalism's rationality, degrading our hope. We can expect the full repressive force of the existent, as we call for the most radical of change, unquote. Can't disagree with any of that. Not sure how I feel about the language of coward and courage, though, but maybe that's me. Audio and video, Fifth Estate Live, NYC Virtual Anarchist Book Fair Preview. An hour from Fifth Estate Live. This is a conversation between David Rovix and an organizer of the 14th annual New York Anarchist Book Fair, virtual style. Now I know that the entire world is trying to figure out how to use video conferencing, but it remains a little cruelly funny when big chunks of time are taken up with people trying to figure out how to share screens, adjust volume, etc. In the realm of things Rovix actually could have helped with, he probably should have let his guest know that they didn't need to shout into their microphone for us to hear them. Beyond technical hullabaloo, the guest talks a bit about the book fair's collective makeup, a bit about setting up a virtual event, and a lot about art activism, two concepts I'm not totally sold on. Also, Rovix is hitting the anarchist jurisdiction jokes hard. Immediatism Podcast, episodes 140 through 143, 28, 27, 8, and 14 minutes respectively from immediatism.com. The first three entries in this series come from the Ardent Press slash Little Black Kurt booklet, Let's Destroy Work, Let's Destroy the Economy, by Italian anarchist, theorist, and bank robber Alfredo M. Bonanno. These pieces focus on the changes in work, capitalism, and economic analyses happening around the time of its writing. Unfortunately, whenever the nitty-gritty of economics is talked about, my brain seems to kind of shut off, but I'm sure there are people smarter than me who could get a lot out of it. The last episode is the introduction to Bonanno's piece, Locked Up, which is an excellent take on modern prisons and prison reform. From Embers, for podcasts from the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair. 37, 35, 50, and 42 minutes, respectively. 
As the title suggests, these are four interviews that were held during Victoria's virtual book fair a couple of weeks ago. The guests presented here are Ruth Kinna, who wrote an Anarchy 101 book that's pretty good, Anne Hansen, famous from Direct Action, Naptali, John Zerzan, and Kathy Ferguson. So a pretty weird mix, unless there's some hidden logic I'm missing. Jay-Z's conversation is <coughs> a bit boring, and the interviewer is weirdly obsessed with his biographical details. No, I don't really care who he was hanging out with in the 70s and 80s. The beginning of Ruth Kinna's interview was cut off and no one wrote what happened there, so the conversation's context was a little confusing. It seemed to be focused on various anarchist views around schooling, anarchists for and against rules, mutual aid, Kropotkin, and Stirner. Oh my! Kathy Ferguson talks a bit about their database of women anarchists and the importance of printing to anarchism. And then we finally arrive at a conversation with Anne Hansen and, and Naptali discussing prison parentheses, paren, in, and parentheses, justice. Hansen was on Fifth Estate Live a few weeks ago talking about this same subject, mainly prison reforms that they see as important in terms of harm reduction. My knee-jerk reaction to this kind of thing is to label it not anarchist and move on, but Anne Hansen is not a dummy and has been in prison, so it's worth taking their provocation seriously regarding how anarchists engage with the prison system. Besides prison breaks, as a friend suggested, any way that we engage with the scare quote justice system is going to be compromised, is going to be dominated by the state's logic. But avoiding engagement entirely because of that seems like a cop-out. And so anarchists are forced to desecrate ourselves by working within the system and should be thinking about how they are doing so, understanding that it isn't always going to be done anarchistically. How much can one compromise in this way and still call what they're doing anarchy remains an open question, though. Gelder Luce on BLM Tactics and Defunding Police, 49 minutes from the ranting minority. I wasn't able to find much info on this YouTube channel, but it appears to be a kind of lefty person who is just learning about anarchism interviewing Peter Gelderloos. I was afraid this conversation would be an entirely Anarchy 101 session, but thankfully Peter jumps out with a fairly, or at least in some people's mind, provocative answer to the very first question of what an anarchist society might look like, which a very unfriendly to Peter Anon helpfully transcribed on A News. Peter says, quote, well, a world with many worlds, so every specific community would have to decide how to organize themselves, and that has to happen in accordance with their history, with their traditions, with their specific needs, their local bioregion, like the specific environment where they exist, and then they would coordinate with neighboring communities in order to meet the needs that they could meet more easily on a larger scale, as opposed to a smaller scale, but of course most power would be at that local level, unquote. Apparently Anon is afraid of the national anarchist creep hiding in Peter's answer, Oh well. The rest of the episode is a discussion of Peter's two books on nonviolence, the context for their writing, police slash prison abolition, and post-police societies. Ontological Anarchy and Psychedelics, an hour and four minutes from Deconstructing Yourself. Deconstructing Yourself is the podcast of someone named Michael W. Taft, who apparently is some kind of a professional meditation teacher, so huh. Anyway, this is a conversation with author Eric Davis, who wrote a book titled High Weirdness, Drugs, Esoterica, and Visionary Experience in the 70s, about Robert Anton Wilson, Philip K. Dick, and Terence McKenna. The conversation moves through the libertarianism slash anarchism of R.A.W., the state as trying to stave off chaos, and the titular ontological anarchism, which is the idea that everything and every being and every viewpoint is multiple all the way down. A particularly interesting portion involves Davis and the host talking about the ways in which the tech world's slow but steady co-optation of fringe, drug, and psychedelic culture 
shows the supreme flexibility capitalism has in terms of swallowing so many supposed alternatives to mainstream normie living. Immediatism podcast episodes 132 through 139 from immediatism.com. Okay, so I only listened to the first episode of this series because there's goddamn eight of them. But this shouldn't discourage you from checking out all of Baden because it is an awesome journal. The section I listened to is titled The Antisocial Turn, Pure Negativity. Here the authors lay out their case for a project of pure, queer, civilization-destroying negativity rather than any kind of recuperable positive project. Drawing heavily on queer theory, authors Lee Edelman and Jack Halberstam, as well as psychoanalysis, Baden seeks to break these ideas out of a purely academic realm and apply them towards the destruction of society as we know it. Good time! of the week, electoral politics. It's that time of year again, on repeat, every four years, where in a little more than a month, the spectacle of the the USA presidential election will take place live over the virtual stream of 2020. This week, we're taking a look at elections, politics, and their impact on anarchist ideas. Do you have a hot take about the upcoming election? What happens after the election? What does the future of anarchist ideas and actions look like under the same slash new president? In your anarchist practice, do you still feel strongly about any situations over the years where anarchists have successfully inserted themselves into politics? Or is it more based to consider how anarchists can liberate themselves from politics and what that may look like? Uh, No need to confine the topic of the week to the USA. Please feel free to open up your responses to other recent elections around the world. 55 comments, so I'm hoping there's going to be some interesting stuff about international elections in those comments. Uh, but, yeah, we'll see. Hi, Anarchy Land. How you doing? Ariel here. So, I've had this electoral politics conversation more than once or twice in my life. So I'm going to kind of mix it up so that I don't fall asleep over here. Uh, I have Tori with me today. Hello. Welcome back, Tori. Thank you. Thank you. So I have questions for Tori. Thank goodness. Tori is considerably (laughs) younger than me. In fact, 20 years. Actually, I'm like your mom's age, aren't I? I think so. That's funny. Almost. I never think of it that way. You, but you you are old enough to vote, but only by a few years. And I believe that you've never voted. I have never voted. Okay, so tell me about you not ever having voted. Because you clearly made a decision not to vote before you had made a decision that you were an anarchist. Uh, yeah, I no? think that they were happening yeah, at were the ha- same time. Okay. I think they were happening at the same time. I was around you um, and other anarchy land folks in the Bay for a while. Um, and I think when I was around 18 or 19, I was feeling the pressure to vote. I was one of those kids who was like pre-registered. So as soon as I turned 18, I was already registered to vote. <laughs> like I was as a child, I remember shaming people, you know, in elementary school, if they came without an, I voted sticker, I was like, why wouldn't you vote? People died for your right to vote, just parroting some of the things that my parents said. And, you know, I'm a black girl, so my parents, even though they're pretty 
they're as revolutionary as they can be considering their class status and other things. Um, they are definitely, we owe everything to our ancestors. We must do right by them. Um, and part of that is people died for our right to vote. I can see that. Um, and my biggest uh, push up against that was, you know, people didn't die for my right to vote. People died for my right to choose to vote um, and have that as an option for me. Um, and I, I don't really care about that anyway. <laughs> like I, the, the choice is nice, but I don't, I don't care about voting anyway. Um, so that's kind of how I got, I don't know. Does that explain how I got there? How did I make that decision? I basically, at the time that I was eligible to vote in the first election for me to vote was coming up. Um, cause I definitely I cared more about local politics at the time. Sure. Um, and even still, um, I knew that only rich people um, and white people's vote mattered, uh, especially because of uh, the way that the demographics were. Um, and even if I got everyone I knew and every single black person to vote like me, that I still couldn't change anything mm-hmm. that way. So I was disillusioned from that right away. So it was about your understanding of the system and how it actually worked as opposed to the presentation of one voice, one vote. Oh uh, yeah. None of that really resonated with me. Okay. I never really fell into the kind of performative things of it. I always viewed it as a tactic when I thought about voting. Mm -hmm. I viewed it as, you know, okay, well, this is one tactic we have. Obviously I grew up, my, my grandmother worked with the Panthers. Um, so I was all about, you know, the Panthers. Like I joke with you, Mm -hmm. Ariel, all the time about, um, DVD warnings about the Mm -hmm. FBI because of piracy. Um, and, like the only thing I knew about the FBI is that they stole Asada Shakur and like being freaked <laughs> out that that was going to happen to me. Um, and so like, it's not that I felt so connected to this virtue of, mm-hmm. you know, voting one vote, one vote, one voice or any of that, but I did view it as a tactic. Um, and some of that mm. fell away by the time it was time for me to vote um, because I didn't even feel like it was a viable tactic. And then I also felt like it was just a tool for people to shame other people. And their only quote unquote civic engagement came every four years. Right. You know, I never saw those people who are always telling me about voting were never the people I saw serving the community, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so because of that, I was like, something's not adding up. This is starting to feel like my, uh, epiphany about religion <laughs> that I had had maybe 10 years prior to that, you know, being like, oh, all these church people fucking suck. <laughs> like, I don't like them. So, you know, they're on and on about God, but none of them are doing all the stuff I'm seeing. These quote unquote bad people, sex workers, trans people taking care of people, you know, I didn't see. And of course, I didn't have the language for that at the time, but. I don't, I'm one of those people who you could go to my old tweets and not find anything problematic because from the beginning of time, I've been like, I'm fucking with the weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> Yay for the weirdos. Um, okay. My short, quick answer is uh, I was raised by a... Uh, Mother who was a second wave feminist and a hardcore democratic liberal uh, who believed in the system. Um, she voted. I was interested and understood politics from a, uh, and, and felt involved and connected and invested long before I was a teenager. 
Uh, I got to vote for Clinton for president the first time when I turned 18. Uh, I was also pre-registered to vote. I was super <laughs> excited about I it. I am so happy to know that. I do not feel so wild now. Um, I, uh, I cared a lot about local politics. Um, I voted absentee two years later when I was 20 so I could vote local. Uh, and then by the time the next presidential election came around when I was 22 and Clinton was up for reelection I was really excited to, this is literally the person I was, I was evaluating Clinton's time in office and the things that he'd promised and the things he'd said. I'm young, so I was thinking of the other Clinton. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, no, this is, no, but this is Bill. Oh, wow. Um, And realized that he hadn't done a lot of what he had said he would do. And the important, the landscape of the important international issues had not changed at all. Uh, and found myself going, what the fuck did you do for four years? Um, and so that was, that was the, probably the real moment of my disillusionment. Like, wait a minute. I put you there because you were supposed to get some shit done and you didn't get anything done. And, uh, we had our, uh, I, I, if I remember correctly, because this was a long time ago, I believe his first semester, first semester, his first <laughs> term was his blunder with the gays in the military, Oh, which was incredibly disappointing. That's Don't Ask, Don't Tell or is that Bush? Yes, that's Don't okay, Ask, that's don't, don't Tell, ask, don't tell. Uh, which was, I mean, kind of a body blow for me and my friends and the people who right. were like, really? This was, it was like, we were super, so like, we felt like he was like, like on a on a silver platter handed a moment where he was going to get to like change fucking history. Oh my God, this is so amazing. It couldn't have happened for a better president. I'm sorry, wait, what? Yeah. What the fuck is that? Yeah. Um, That's how I felt when Obama started bombing kids. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, I hate it here. This is the bad place after all. You know, um, I had that same disillusionment. I can definitely connect to that. So I guess it was mostly, maybe it was, it's a combination of things. It's definitely not one thing or the other. It wasn't just that I didn't think tactically it would work. I think it was also, I was completely disillusioned after watching so much, just so much shitty, so many shitty things happening. And I was frustrated because like in my eyes, voting was this huge harm reduction thing because I didn't grow up loving the United States or something. Like that was never my experience i didn't go from that extreme to this like i literally did not even fuck with the united states and then you know i was like okay well we can just use this as a tool and then i was like no we fucking can't we can't even use this as a tool and these people suck you know they're killing kids like all the things that i heard that i should be voting to stop from happening vote for those people and they still do the same stuff so it was a lot of lip service and um so i was completely over it um based off of those two things um so it was definitely not one or the other though it was a mix of all of those things Mm -hmm. and also like "Mm, will i regret not voting probably not will i regret voting probably especially because of my positions just about like supporting settler colonialism and what that means like how that kind of shows up in what I do as a quote unquote citizen, you know, of the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, 
I didn't want to be a part of it. Um, and that was a really hard choice for me because I was pre-registered. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I know, I'm using yeah. that kind of as allegory for, yeah. you know, where you, I, I was. You were, you had a plan. Oh, yeah. You believed. Long before. Right. Long before it was right. time, you know? In middle school, I was so, pre-registered. Like, I was what? so excited. I could not believe my luck. That I turned 18 in January of the year of a presidential election. That I was going to get to vote immediately for a president. I was so I dreamed of that. excited. When it, was, when it was 2008, I was like, can you imagine what it must be like for your first vote to be for a black president? Yeah, sure. So, <laughs> freeze frame. <laughs> freeze frame. How did we get here? You're wondering how... How did we get there? Literally, what the fuck did... That was a mess. Uh, Deporter-in-chief was a mess. The whole thing, like, if there was anything I cared about at that point of the U.S., it was literally... That was the thing that brought me back into, like, oh, maybe it could be okay here. And then, like, a few months in, I was like, I'm completely done with this country. I can't wait to move away. (laughs) Like, I was completely done after that. So, um, as far as electoral politics, it's been challenging to navigate that in talking about politics with people who are not anarchists and trying to get them to understand um, some of my other positions about no government because they feel like the only way that you can engage in politics is electoral politics. Um, And like that's their only connection to politics at all. Um, And voting. So around voting time, that's when these conversations come up because they're not thinking about politics in any other way at any other time, unless they're one of those kind of affected groups, which sometimes we call marginalized groups. But sometimes affected just means, you know, you have a friend who's disabled and you want ramps at school, you know, Um, and it has nothing to do with uh, you specifically and how you're harmed. So, oh, I don't want to say harmed too many times, but, you. you know, basically... Like that, that kind of empathy is where those politics come from, but they never kind of explore politics outside of who you'll vote for. And that's a big issue. So (laughs) your friends, your peers, did they vote? Not that I know of. Okay. I mean, actually, I do know some people who vote. I take that back. I do know many people who vote. I have a friend in law school. Mm -hmm. I have a couple friends who just vote harm reduction wise, but we don't talk about it very much. Okay. I think that they're trying to posture to me, you know, okay. that they don't vote. Do you, do you have any sense of whether or not they are exceptional? No, I think that most people my age are voting. You do? Most people my age that I know who went to the liberal institutions that I went to for college and otherwise yeah. are voting. I think they are voting. Yeah, and that's I get true. that you impression. Are, you are properly classed. You went to college proper and have a four year degree. Yeah, and so I think that they're, I think they're voting. Huh. Um, okay. But the people that I'm around, out of those people, no, no, I, I no, I'm. But you be know, surprised I'm, if the people you choose, yeah, are the people who are most likely not to. But I, None, but I was asking a little bigger than you, right? I'm, I'm trying curious. to think like the people around them maybe still do vote. Like I definitely know. I mean, and they're not voting because they're so involved in politics, but more because they're told that that is the best way to be a good person. Um, and sure. they want to be good people. Mm-hmm. You know, they are guilt. They feel guilt. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to be negligent and cause someone else their rights. 
Um, and with Trump being <laughs> how he is, you know, people are so like that motivated. <laughs> it literally is because this entire world is focused on like how to coerce people into doing things oh, with guilt. Yeah. So that is uh-huh. exactly where it's coming from. It's not really about it's like, oh, no, am I going to be responsible for these kids not getting free lunch? Yes. You. I can't you, all by deal yourself. with that. Just Literally. You. Yes. And you know, some, so much happen. of that is a huge project by corporations. Obviously, sure, yeah. I'm preaching to the choir here, but I remember watching an episode of Mad Men um, and they're eating a picnic and they leave all of the trash on the ground. And I was like, wait, what the fuck? Was that a thing people do? Just leave all your trash on the ground? So I do some research, Wikipedia, and um, they're talking about how the term litter bug is completely invented during this time period by corporations trying to dodge accountability for making all this single-use plastic and single-use like glass bottles and things. Um, And even though you could refill them, they kind of shut down some of that process during that time. And so they're talking about the way that people just leave things out. And so to shift responsibility from the corporation to the consumer, Mm -hmm. they invented this term litter bug and start running ads saying that you're a litter bug and it's your fault that the earth is messed up, you know? And that that's not the original blueprint of blaming the individual for corporation issues, but it's a perfect example of how that spirals into the future of you can't have a straw. And and when them, yeah, I mean, but it worked. It totally worked. It's and it's perfect. And it's why the, guilt it's and why like, the recycling campaign waged by the corporations in the nineties also worked. Absolutely, because they just picked they lit blueprint. Perfect word. Picked it, picked it Literally. up. Repurposed it. Did it again. Totally worked. Totally, totally worked. So, so do you? How do you talk about politics and voting with your family? With the normal people in your life, do they know that you aren't a voter? They definitely don't know I'm a voter. I definitely pretend I vote. And I try to pretend to care about electoral politics for them uh, because I know they're trying to connect to me um, and they value my opinion about things. Uh, But the major disconnect between them and me um, is that they knew people who were directly involved in the civil rights movement of the 60s and feel a lot of allegiance to those specific people, you know, like their grandma, who was a sharecropper. You know what I mean? They feel like that person literally stood in line into infinity, basic, almost infinity, so that I could vote. So I'm gonna vote every single year and I don't feel that connection. Um, and so it's hard for me to get my point across about why I don't vote to them because they have this personal feeling of, you know, you have to, you must. Wow. The weight of that must be awful. Oh yeah. It's horrible. I can't even imagine. It sounds horrible. I mean, I only watch it unfold. I have no idea. I tried to be sympathetic to it, but it is definitely um, hard to watch. And like this just... It's the way that uh, Black people and people of color and just marginalized groups in general have this sense of identity connected to a group Uh and having to protect that group and not wanting to be selfish or individual because or an individual because they don't want to uh, ruin something for the rest of the group in a way that non-marginalized groups don't have that identity and connection to a group. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they're not carrying that weight and it doesn't come out in these kind of decisions. And this is a major way that that plays out for my own family and other folks sure. that I know. Yeah. Um, so definitely feeling like a, an allegiance to these people who died for them specifically. And I'm like, those people didn't die for me. 
like when people were talking about uh, slaves working really hard in the field and how they're their ancestors' wildest dreams. I was like, my ancestors' wildest dreams were probably some water in a break. You know what I mean? Like they probably, <laughs> like maybe they did dream past that for a black girl to, you know, go to college or something, but maybe they just wanted food and shelter. You know what I mean? Like maybe that's what they wanted and a break and not to be slaves. For their children to be free. Yeah. Or for their children to be free. You know, like maybe that was their wildest dreams and maybe we don't need to project so much. Yeah. That's a lot. (laughs) That's that's putting a lot of puffed up weight on, you know. And some of that's coming from like a a protection thing. Generations ago. It's of like, you know, recognize our history, recognize the struggle, you know, be grateful, whatever. And, you know, move with some kind of connection to that past. But it's just gotten so out of control. And these are the same people who are going to print like a t-shirt that says, I'm my ancestor's wildest dreams. It's just Ooh, all baby barf. Like, okay. <laughs> it's sick. I, uh, my family's, uh, broke. Traditionally, my father's family is working poor. Um, and, you know, dreams and aspirations are having enough food until the next time you get paid. Uh, and, um, yeah, my black family didn't talk about voting. Didn't talk about what's owed or what's due or, uh, you know, they had a fundamental acceptance of the fact that it's not for us. All that shit's for white people. Mm. And they don't actually give a damn. And that's all just shit that they say to make other white people feel bad so they'll vote for them so that they'll get elected. Um, I think that the black family members I have have that same thing. And I think that this goes back into like the corporations convincing people this is on the individual. I think mm. the connection to that for me is the black church and just other black establishment type people sure. using this guilt of like, well, it's our ancestors to loop people like my parents and other black families like into, well, maybe this could be for us, you know? Yeah. Um, and my, like, I, I wouldn't paint my parents as simple people, you know? Um, yeah. They are, they are smart. They are, aware that this isn't for them, but that guilt is what keeps them in, Interesting. you know? Um, so it's not that they feel like this is so great. Like I said, you know, my parents have been on the burn it down for a long time, yeah. but then at the same time, not. Yeah, no. Cause at the same time, you know? your parents are the, are the perfect child of middle-class upward mobility and American consumerism. They are. Yeah. So there's a mix there. It's, it's actually yeah. scary. I wish we could, talk more about it. <laughs> well, well, perhaps that will be another episode. Um, okay. Uh, do I have a hot take about the upcoming cole- election? No. Um, what happens after the election? I'm I'm looking forward to two outcomes. Um, Trump losing and packing up and going to Mar-a-Lago to golf it out until January 20th (laughs) and the whole West Wing media spin about how in it the president is and no, no, he's only there temporarily on business. He's involved in daily decisions (laughs) while he's sending pictures of his swing and tweeting about his lunch. Um, I hope that that would like, that's just going to be, that would just be great television. It would just be hilarious. 
um, the other side of that where he digs in and, you know, they have to, like, tank him out. That's funny. You think? Oh, no. I you don't think. Oh, I don't. I, I don't. No, no. I think he's going to win. Oh, yeah. I think he's definitely going to so win. So I actually don't think either of these are actual scenarios. They're just funny to think about. I think they could be entertaining. I definitely think he's going to win. And yeah. I cannot wait. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait. This is kind of like a few years ago where we're like, do you think Oprah will run? And I was like, well, oh that would be amazing TV on this episode of Quarantine. Oh, <laughs> Oprah and her mini wigs. I was rooting so hard for that presidency. A woman oh my who God. puts that herself was, on the cover of that her magazine. That was just going to throw white people. Oh, my God. I was White yeah. people love Oprah, though. Yeah. So but, it was going to be incredible but, but to watch. But that was why it was Oprah and her mini wigs. Because mm. it was required that Oprah do the regular rotation of the wig thing. Because that's the part that was going to have white people be like, wait, her hair was long yesterday. Why is it short now? <laughs> and then it's long again. And now it's red. What's happening? Is she spending all this money on getting her hair done? It would that like yeah. it would just I don't know why I thought that was so amusing. And you and I had long discussions about <laughs> my whole vision of Oprah with many wigs as president. I don't know why I kept going down this road, but I was like, yeah. The white people would give us so much be the content. Best show I, on TV. Um, the critique I would have. It would just be so good. It would be so good. Um uh I don't know. I was somewhat enjoying the Trump show. It's less entertaining because it's like the content is doesn't really change. Um, I'm completely bored with it, honestly. And I yeah, feel like I've already seen and, this season and um, I just am over it. I, I'm now starting to... He was such a buffoon and such an idiot. I love that word. That's one of my favorite words. It's a great word. Um, that... Like in the beginning, it was just that, like, this is all, this is the U.S. government being dismantled and falling apart. And I'll take the dismantling part because, you know, anarchist. Uh, and it, and it's, it's like a sideshow. And, and, but there, but there was this way that I did think he was kind of harmless mm. um, because he was so incompetent. But him, him, fo- like, he found the law and order thing and that became, his trench and he dug in and now he's actually i mean he did some dangerous stuff before but like this is his groove and he likes this and he and the attorney general have this whole love affair going on and uh like the attorney general is personally offended by my politics and now claiming something in the name of anarchists like this is actually i think literally a crusade for him Mm. uh and so um the his everything took a turn that i didn't quite expect it to take because i never thought that trump would actually like land in a place where he could be effective by anyone's measure and he has now very much by his and a whole bunch of his bases measure been effective. Right. Um, so yeah, I would be I'd be thrilled if it weren't him. But oh, but you know, I know where but I you live. Know, I do actually kind of want to see Kamala win. 
because, you know, she had that slip up the other day. I hate to let y'all know that I do read Twitter headlines. <laughs> but yes, apparently she said the Harris administration. And I'm like, I wonder if Biden's finna drop dead. I'm excited. I mean, this could be the twist of the season. This could be exactly what we need. Um, yeah. Because will he make it to election day? Will he not? It's a very interesting oh, will he, yeah. won't he? No, no. They'll have a whole weekend at Bernie's you know, a mm. uh, uh, simulacra thing going on if they have to, to make sure that he at least makes it to inauguration day. So I'm not too worried about that. <laughs> well, thank you, Anarchy Land, for tuning in for this, well, frankly, all over the map conversation. <laughs> Do I get to be entertained by one? Okay, this one was entertain- entertaining for me. So thanks for hanging in there and thanks for hanging out. And... um. You know, when I come on, it's a party. <laughs> it's a party. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. It's hot in the Bay today. And I just, <laughs> it's just one of those days. Yeah. So uh, be safe. Stay angry. And, you know, don't let the voters get you down. Lord Farquaad signing off. Thanks, Tori. <laughs> Bye. Change the trip to the voting booth. You got to go. This week's podcast was sound edited by Greg. Awesome, awesome, Greg. The What's New was written and read by Chisel and Greg, and we thank Ariel and a friend for their help with the topic of the week, electoral politics. To learn more, Anarchist Command has political books, pamphlets, and material available at robotcast.com. Can you buy any about Anarchist Command in the country? See you at anarchistmove.org and at the Anarchist Desires in Chatland and Funny News. Also, Chloroma! You gotta vote. If you don't know she vote, you gotta vote. Coming this November, there's a chance to make a change. It's the lady that you pick last time turned out to be a little strange. It's all about the future now and how they run the show. You're the customer, not satisfied, then it's time.